Welcome back to another episode of Mormon Traditionalist Podcast. My name is Jaron O'Driscoll and I am your host. Thanks for joining me again on this episode today, guys. Just a reminder to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to this podcast. That will help me out immensely. And don't forget to come visit me September 23rd through the 25th at the Book of Mormon Evidence Conference in Sandy, Utah. That'll be running 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. the 23rd through the 25th. Come see me there. Okay, let's get into this. I'm going to talk to you today about one of the most damaging pieces of literature that has ever existed in the realm of anti-Mormon propaganda. It's been as damaging as Mark Hoffman's lovely collection of filth, and it's equally as fraudulent, and you'll understand why by the end of this episode. The funny thing is, those two things, the Hoffman forgeries and this other piece of trash, are the two things that the work of modern-day Korah whores like Leonard Arrington and Richard Bushman hinge on the most. Take those uh, two things away, and their narrative goes into freefall. This piece of literature I'm referring to is a book published in 1834 called Mormonism Unveiled, uh, published by Heber D. Howe. This is the name you will find it listed under today, but the real author uh, that did all the work was a man named Dr. Philastus Hurlbut. So what exactly is Mormonism Unveiled? Well, it's a series of affidavits supposedly collected by this Hurlbut guy from several people in Palmyra, New York, that knew Joseph Smith and the Smith family. The major claims from these affidavits are that uh, Joseph Smith was involved in money digging, uh, the occult, black magic, using a seer stone and a hat to translate the Book of Mormon rather than the Urim and Thummim, and that the Smith family were a bunch of uh, idle, lazy slobs. And these are the major claims that the anti-Mormon scholars and activists use today to discredit Joseph Smith and the Restoration. Now, I'm going to leave the best for last here, which is the plethora of shenanigans that brought this Mormonism Unveiled book into existence. But first, I'm going to squash one supporting argument for the money-digging crap. For reference, you can go to page 115 of uh, Faith Crisis 2 by James and Hannah Stoddard. This money-digging narrative started because of business deals that Joseph Smith had with a man named Josiah Stoll. In Richard Bushman's book, Rough Stone Rolling, he tried to prop up some paper-thin evidence that this Stoll guy partnered with Joseph Smith and his father to dig for money and share in the spoils. Bushman referenced a set of, quote, articles of agreement that supposedly show this transaction. Well, it turns out that this agreement can't be found anywhere. In fact, you read the Joseph Smith papers and it says this, this document does not appear among this volume's featured texts because it cannot be authenticated. No manuscript of the contract exists and it is known only through its publication in Utah's then avowedly anti-Mormon Salt Lake Daily Tribune, April 23, 1880, 55 years after it was purportedly written and 2,000 miles distant. Even copies of the 20, 20th of March, 1880 issue of the Susquehanna Journal, where it reportedly first appeared in print, cannot be located. There is no credible evidence that Joseph Smith participated in digging for buried treasure in Pennsylvania before 1825. To put it simply, this document doesn't exist. Bushman is referring to a claim from an anti-Mormon publication that is trying to recall something supposedly seen 55 years prior. Paper thin. And to the contrary, Joseph Smith addressed this when he said that Josiah Stoll did hire him to dig for money, 
But after about a month with no success, Joseph convinced Stoll to give up such a ridiculous waste of time and money. So that claim is debunked. Next, let's address black magic and the occult. No credible sources have ever cited Joseph turning people into frogs, pulling rabbits from hats, sawing women in sparkly outfits in half, or pulling quarters out of people's noses. He didn't tour with Chris Angel, and as far as we know, he didn't even perform at kids' birthday parties. There are zero credible sources for this stupid magic narrative, and almost all of them come from Mormonism Unveiled. Gordon B. Hinckley said this uh, around the time he was pushing for uh, Richard Bushman's book to not be published. Quote, another phenomenon is described as the writing of a a new history of the church as distinguished from the old history. It represents, among other things, an effort to ferret out every element of folk magic and the occult in the environment in which Joseph Smith lived to explain what he did and why. I have no doubt there was folk magic practiced in those days. Without question, there were superstitions and the superstitious. I suppose there was some of this in the days when the Savior walked the earth. There is even some in this age of so-called enlightenment. Similarly, the fact that there were superstitions among the people in the days of Joseph Smith is no evidence whatever that the church came of such superstition. Close quote. Mic drop from President Hinckley. Moving on. Using a seer stone in a hat to translate the Book of Mormon. If you haven't heard of this one, folks, it's another claim of Joseph's supposed magic tricks. The idea is that he didn't use the Urim and Thummim, but instead buried his face in in his hat like a goofball with a seer stone inside, and the words for the Book of Mormon showed up on the stone. Mind you, this would be a dictation, not a translation. The prophet and the witnesses there always said that he translated. There's another book by Hannah and James Stoddard that covers this subject in detail called Seer Stone vs. Urim and Thummim, Book of Mormon Translation on Trial. I'll put that in the show notes where you can see that and uh, get that book. But yeah, no credible source for that claim either. The peep stone in the hat claim came from David Whitmer, who was an apostate from the church. And he made this claim decades later after Joseph was dead and just as he was starting his own church. Coincidence much? Most people don't know that he was never even involved in the translation of the plates. He had nothing to do with it. There's also evidence out there that Emma Smith talked about Joseph using a seer stone to translate and that she was involved in helping with part of the translation. It's true Emma said those things, but here's the context that progressives omit. Emma was very old at the time. One of these letters she wrote with this uh, information in it was months before her death. And she only wrote those things after a man named William McClellan visited her. Uh, This guy was running around with David Whitmer trying to sell people on the Searstone narrative. So this was nothing more than a power-hungry prick preying on the poor mental state of an old woman. Emma had said before that uh, that she had never even saw the plates or the Urim and Thummim. And finally, the claims of the Smith family being idle and lazy and Joseph Smith Sr. being a drunk. I love this one the most because there's actual scientific evidence to debunk this one. So in 1993, a guy named Donald L. Enders did a huge study on the farms in Palmyra, including uh, farm account books, land and tax records, soil surveys, and a ton of other data. And this is what he found. Of the 253 farms in Manchester Township, only 24.51% had more acreage than the Smith farm, 
and 66.4% were smaller. Only 8.7% were the same size. This is a quote from Ender's, uh, Ender's findings. Quote, The Staffords, Stoddards, Chases, and Caprones were neighborhood residents who spoke poorly of the Smiths. Only one of the ten families in this four-family group had property assessed more valuable than the Smiths. Of the five families in the Stafford family group, none had a higher appraisal than the Smiths. In comparison to others in the township and neighborhood, the Smiths' efforts and accomplishments were superior to most. In the township, only 40% of the farms were worth more per acre, and just 25% were larger. In the neighborhoods, only 29% of the farms were worth more, and only 26% were larger. Close quote. The families he mentions at the beginning, those four families uh, of that quote, are the claims from the affidavits in Mormonism Unveiled. And just side note, the Stoddards that it talks about in there have no relation to the authors of that book, just, just so you know. Um, Joseph Smith also said that these neighbors were always jealous of the Smiths. And uh, here's one last nail in the coffin. When the Smiths bought their land, it was raw, meaning untouched, uh, heavily forested, and it needed to be cleared for farming. The Smiths cut down hundreds, if not thousands, of trees on their 60 acres. And remember, there were no chainsaws back then. There was no heavy equipment back then. That should tell you enough right there. But besides that, uh, and running their own farm, here is the list of the ventures the Smiths were involved in on their own, uh, own farm. Digging and rocking up wells, mowing, coopering and repairing barrels, including dye tubs, barrels, water, and sap buckets. Constructing cisterns, harvesting crops, digging for salt, constructing stone walls and fireplaces, flailing grain, butchering, digging coal, and hauling stone. And on top of that, they hired themselves out for work for other people, including split wood chairs and baskets, cordwood, modest carpentry work, cider, garden produce, bee gum, uh, maple, uh, maple sugar, and maple syrup. And then other routine things around the farm, including hunting and trapping, teaching school, providing domestic service, carting, washing clothes, painting uh, oilcloth coverings, and painting chairs. Lucy Mack Smith recorded this in her history. Quote, In the spring after we moved onto the farm, we commenced making maple sugar, of which we averaged a thousand pounds per year. This was no small feat, as Daniel Peterson commented after calculating that this level of production would require having tapped more than 500 trees, collected 60,000 pounds of sap, and burned 10,000 pounds of wood over perhaps a week of 20 to 24 hour days to boil off the water. But they were lazy drunks. There's a really good video on YouTube that Hannah Stoddard does uh, that I'll uh, link in the show notes that goes over this whole uh, thing, all the stuff that the Smiths were involved in that's really good. I'll link that in the show notes for you. So yeah, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like uh, a bunch of uh, lazy, idle people. But what do I know? Uh, okay, now let's move on to the nitty gritty of Mormonism Unveiled. Like I said earlier, it was published by Eber Howe, but the work was done by Dr. Philastus Hurlbut. <laughs> First off, he wasn't a doctor. This is so weird to me. Uh, that isn't a title. It's, it's his given name. Yes, his parents named him doctor. He had a history of joining and being kicked out of numerous uh, churches throughout his life and uh, several Christian communities. 
His time with the LDS church didn't even last two years before he was excommunicated for uh, infidelity, basically. This was the running theme for every congregation he was kicked out of, including his role as a Methodist preacher in Jamestown, New York, prior to him joining the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But before the LDS church excommunicated him, he went before a church council and pleaded his case and begged for forgiveness. George, uh, George Albert Smith wrote about what happened with this quote. In consequence of improper conduct among females, he was expelled from the church. He confessed his wickedness to the council. I was present and I heard him. He promised before God, angels, and men that he would from that time forth live his religion and preserve his integrity if they would only forgive him. He wept like a child and prayed and begged to be forgiven. The council forgave him, but Joseph told him, you are not honest in this confession. A few days afterwards, he published his, renun uh, his renunciation of the work, assigning as a reason that he had deceived that council and made them believe his was an honest confession when he only confessed to see whether the council had power to discern his spirit. Joseph, however, told him at the time that he was not honest in his confession. Close quote there. So dude went on and purposely tried to deceive them, which he did with the exception of Joseph Smith. After that, he went on a hate rampage, as I've heard Hannah put it. At the request of an anti-Mormon committee in Ohio, Hurlbut set out to obtain affidavits from people who were familiar with the Smith family. His journey was done for the purpose of, in their words, collecting statements disparaging to the Smith name, obtain information that would show the bad character of the Mormon Smith family, divest Joseph of all claims to the character of an honest man, and place him at an immeasurable distance from the high station he pretends to occupy. One Presbyterian historian has speculated that the gathering of the affidavits was revenge by the three local Presbyterian leaders for a claim made by Joseph's mother, Lucy Mack Smith, that they had conspired to destroy the Book of Mormon. So this dirtbag goes and gathers slash manufactures all of these affidavits with only the noblest of intentions. But before he can get them put together and published, he's arrested in 1834 for allegedly threatening the prophet Joseph Smith's life. He did this when he promised in writing, mind you, that he would wash his hands in Joseph Smith's blood. He was released soon after, but his reputation was as worthless as a helmet on a kamikaze at this point. So he was forced to go to the anti-Mormon publisher, Eber D. Howe. In a funny turn of events, though, Howe basically conned Hurlbut out of his share of the money, and the book was a bust. Hurlbut could hardly give them away once he got his hands on them to actually distribute them. This book was a failure in its day, and no one took it seriously. Historians until modern day looked at Mormonism unveiled as laughable. The book was like the National Enquirer of its time. It wasn't fooling anybody. But Richard Bushman said about the affidavits, quote, Academic historians had taken them seriously. So should I. Historians like Leonard Arrington? Come on, dude. For a guy that's supposed to be progressive, that's pretty regressive thinking. Aren't you supposed to be all about free thinking? Let someone do the thinking for you. Great move. Such a weak argument. Also, after all this happened, he went on to become a known thief, Hurlbut, and there's strong evidence that he was a murderer, though he was never convicted. So that's it in a nutshell, folks. An incredible piece of trash from another incredible piece of trash. 
Remember that this is the basis, along with the Hoffman forgeries, for the majority of the modern attack on the church and its history. This is the foundation that the one-footers and the antis build Satan's kingdom on. That's it for this one, folks. I want to give a shout out to Kim Smith. She is the senior researcher for the Faith Crisis books. She was kind enough to send me her research for this episode and also for the last episode on uh, William Godby. So thank you, Kim. You're awesome. You made my life so much easier. Remember to subscribe, leave a rating and review, and send all of your questions, comments, and hate mail to mormontraditionalist at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at mormontraditionalist for more content. And until the next episode, remember, never back down from the truth. <laughs>